Amen. Did you know that scientists have found that human beings process their negative emotions uh, more thoroughly, typically, than their positive ones? That was found in the context of trying to explain why people are more likely to leave a negative customer review online than a positive one. People are much more likely to share a bad experience they had than to post a good one. And there's something about human beings that wants to communicate when we feel like something wrong has happened to us, especially when we feel like it's been an injustice, a real, a real sin has been committed against us. Few things will make people more passionate or more vocal than when they feel like they or someone that they care about has been sinned against. I was reminded of that, that principle just this other week when I heard a really tragic story about a woman in Britain. There's actually a young girl, a 19-year-old girl named Seduxa, and she developed a, a really, very rare genetic disease and was beginning to die. And in the, the kind of final days of her life, her family, they heard that there was a treatment option available, an experimental treatment available in Canada. And so before she lost kind of capacity, uh, kind of comprehension of what was going on, she, she communicated, I want to try this in Canada. Her family wanted to try it. But the way that the, the hospital worked, the system in Britain, they had to get permission to go there. And it was denied by the hospital. And then they, they took it to court. They're like, no, we, we want to go. We, we need to go. And the court said no. Now, I don't understand all the dynamics of the situation. The court, the court and the hospital, they, they dispute some of what was said. But when I read that story, I was enraged because I pictured my daughter. I just thought, if that actually happened, I would want to do anything I possibly could to try and save her life. And so since that has happened, her family, they have been talking to anyone who will listen. They've been going and trying to communicate what's happened because they don't want it to happen to anyone else. They say, what happened to our daughter? That shouldn't happen to any other child, any other person. Now, the reason I bring that up, the, the, the frustration we have when there's injustice, the, the way that we open our mouths and want to communicate about it to others, is that where we're at in the book of Romans is the section where, where Paul is talking about God's judgment. Now, in our society, there are many people who rage at the idea that God will judge people, specifically that God would send people to hell. And what we're going to see in our passage, when we, when we arrive at the end of it, is we're going to see that there will be no excuses or accusa- accusations of injustice when people stand before God. To see that in our text, we have two main points. We're going to look at all under sin and every mouth shut. If you're taking notes, those points are all under sin and every mouth shut. For our first main point, listening into Paul's question at the start of verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? The we there refers to Jews. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Paul in verse 9, he speaks as a prosecuting attorney, and he summarizes the case that he's been building since chapter 1. That sexually immoral idolaters, those who, who willfully rebel against God, and people who try to keep the law externally and judge other people who don't. 
and the Jews, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. He says, all of them are without excuse. All of them are guilty before God. So both Jews and Greeks, he says, aka the entire world, all are under sin. Now, what does that phrase mean? That all are under sin. The term under sin, it refers to power or the rule of someone over another. And once again, we see that sin is much more than just external behavior. It runs far deeper than that. Paul personifies sin as a cruel tyrant, one that we are enslaved to and unable to free ourselves from on our own. And to prove our condition, Paul, he makes his case by quoting a series of seven Old Testament verses. And these quotes show at least two aspects of sin. The first I want you to notice is the universality of sin, where the the fact that all humanity has been impacted by sin. Verses 10 through 12 come primarily from Psalm 14. And in that psalm, what we get is God's perspective, what God sees when he looks down on the human race. So as I read these verses to you again, you have to realize this is not Paul's opinion. This isn't Paul's assessment of humanity. It's God's assessment. It's God's declaration of humanity apart from Christ. Picking it up in verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. It's hard to imagine how God could be more clear or more explicit about the universal sinfulness of human beings. In these three short verses, God says, no one four times. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does what is good. Twice he says, all have turned aside. Then all have become worthless. And then just to make sure we know there are no exceptions, twice God says, not even one. Not even one. Now this goes against the deepest instincts that people have about religion. Most people believe that if there is a God, as long as you try and live a decent life and and try and be a good person or true to yourself, then God will certainly accept you. You know, if you've never read the Bible before, if you're exploring Christianity and this is your first time here, we are so glad that you're visiting. I'm so glad that you're here. And my guess is that whether you've realized it or not, you have this assumption already operating in your soul. You probably view Christianity as a system of explaining how God wants you to live. For some people, it's, I need to figure out how to raise my kids. For others, it's, I need to beat an addiction in my life. And so these rules of Christianity that help make me a better person, that help me figure out how to live so I can be confident that I'm good enough and that I measure up. And what all of us need to understand is that the Bible, it says something totally radical, something totally unique among all religions and all philosophies in the world. It says none of us are good enough by God's standards. And even more than that, none of us can make ourselves good enough. That's not just true for you and me in this room. That's true of every human being on this planet. There is no one righteous, not even one. Sin is a universal human reality. The second thing to notice is the total depravity of our sinful condition. 
Now, this is an old theological term, total depravity, and it's often misunderstood. I used to misunderstand it. This doesn't refer to the degree of our sinfulness. It refers to the pervasiveness of it. It means that sin has infected and damaged every aspect of our humanity, that no part of our our human nature has been uncompromised or untainted by sin. Theologian J.I. Packer, he concisely summed it up this way. No one is as bad as as he or she might be, but at the same time, no action of ours is as good as it should be. This is why Jesus can say, you who are evil know how to give good gifts. He says, you're evil, you're sinful, that's your condition, but you can still give good gifts. As as Christians, one of the things we realize as we begin to follow Christ is that we need his forgiveness, not just of the bad things we've done, not just the things that we know are wrong, that we are ashamed of when we reflect on our life. What you begin to realize as you follow Christ is that you need his forgiveness for all of the good things you've done for wrong reasons. All the the good that you've done for sinful motivations. Now, I've shared this before, but I look back and I, I cringe thinking how many times I've shared the gospel and the reason I did it was to try and impress other people at church. To, to try and look like a better Christian to others. I think about that and it's like, oh, I want to I want to throw up. But it shows how sin, what it does is it twists things back on ourselves. Sin twists things and make it, it makes it all about us, even our relationships with people that we care about the most. See, Paul, he quotes verses that show how pervasively each of us has been corrupted by sin. And he seems to pick many that state or imply how our whole body has been infected. Let's walk through that list together. First, Paul starts with how sin has perverted our character. He says there's no one righteous, not even one. Next, Paul shows the effect of sin on our minds when he says there is no one who understands. Now, this is sobering because it means that sin has affected our rational faculty. Humans, we have the ability to reason, but sin, it twists this capacity so that instead of evaluating truth objectively, especially spiritual truth, we suppress it. That's what Paul said in in Romans 1.18, just a few chapters earlier. So when we encounter truth, especially spiritual truth that that we don't like, that doesn't fit the way we want the universe to be, or especially the way that we want to live, we are so good at dismissing it, ignoring it, suppressing those truths. And this reality of how sin has affected our minds, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. And that quote is that humans are never more creative than when justifying our sin. Isn't that true? Humans are never more creative than when justifying our sin. We are geniuses when it comes to to trying to to figure out a way to justify what we want to do. we, We can sell ourselves some amazing lies. And what that means, this, this reality of sin's effect in our minds, is that we shouldn't rely on our own understanding or instincts when we are evaluating life or morality. But instead, we need to learn God's word. We need to learn to submit our, our thoughts to his truth. And that's not just the case for our own thoughts and opinions. It's also true for those of others. For example, if, if you follow the news, if you read the newspaper, you'll see more and more people will cite experts 
Experts get quoted all of the time. Now, it's wonderful that there are experts in different fields, and I'm not saying that people can't operate objectively at times, but what we have to understand is that sin, it affects our ability to reason. It affects the way that we look at the world. And so even with, with other people, their opinions, we need to, as Christians, be discerning. We need to, we need to think, is, is this actually true? Is this consistent with reality? Is this consistent with the scriptures? And this ties into the next point, which is that sin affects our motives. Sin affects our motives. That's why Paul says, there is no one who seeks God. Think about that just for a moment. There's no one who seeks God. Do you believe that's true? If it is, it means that people in other religions are not seeking God. It also means that no one growing up in a Christian family, even in our church, the little kids in our church, they don't naturally seek God. Now, some of you parents, you say, amen. <laughs> My kids, they, they do not naturally seek God. But I think for other, other aspects of our life, this can seem to run contrary to our own experience. Human beings are very spiritual. People in other religions are often very genuine about what they believe. Now, even many of us, there was a season where where we were seeking God, even desperately, to, to try and understand salvation. And so how, how do we square that with what Paul is saying here? Well, notice that he doesn't say no one seeks blessings from God or spiritual experiences or forgiveness. It doesn't say that, that no one seeks healing or, or help from God when, when their life is falling apart. Human beings around the world do that all the time. They seek those things from God all the time. And that's not what Paul is denying. He's denying something much more specific. He's saying human beings don't seek God. We don't seek God. We don't want God for who God is. See, Paul is saying that, that voluntarily we don't value God and we never would left to our own sinful nature. And the tragedy is we were made for God. God is so good. He's made us for himself. We find joy and satisfaction in him, but in our flesh, we don't want him. We reject him. I was listening to a message this week and the pastor was talking about how he struggled so much as a young Christian with this specific section. And he said that the thing that, that helped it click for him was a couple years into following Christ, he was going through some trials. He was going through kind of a tough, tough patch and he was going to pray, and he was thinking to himself, why should I even pray? I'm working so hard for this God. What am I getting out of it? And all of a sudden, it just hit him. Now we're going to find out. Now we're going to find out, do I really want God, or do I just want the things he can give me? Do I really want the giver, or, do I really want, or am I really just interested in the gifts? So the, the, the human nature, naturally, we don't want God. We just want the things that he can give us. And so the conclusion then, how should we think about no one seeks God? If we factor in the, the rest of what the Bible says, we can say no one seeks God. No one genuinely desires God for God's sake unless God seeks them first. If, if, if God didn't seek us, we wouldn't seek him. Just think about what Jesus said. He said, I came to what? to seek and save 
the lost. Jesus is God. Our God is a seeking God. And the, the center of his rescue mission is the cross. Now, Jesus also said that no one can come to him for salvation unless what? Unless the Father draws him. If God was not active in this world, if God was not a seeking God, then none of us here, we would never have initiated to seek him. This leads to our next two points. Our will and our purpose have been infected by sin. Verse 12, it says, all have turned away, all alike have become worthless, which is an echo of Isaiah 53 that says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We're sinful by nature as human beings, but we also see, we also see here it's by choice. There's a willfulness in our sin. There's a trajectory away from God. All have turned away. Just think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They walked with God. They had fellowship with God. But when they were tempted, when they tried to take the place of God and function as God, when they first sinned, what did they immediately do afterwards? They hid. They tried to get away from God. And that, that is what we naturally do in our flesh. We often use religion as a way to try and hide from God. Here's a, a working definition of sin. Sin dethrones God. As we've often said, it, it's us wanting to be God of our own little world. Sin is the deep commitment we have to controlling our own lives and ruling our own lives instead of joyfully submitting them to God. And since we were made to worship God and walk with him, sin makes us worthless, according to verse 12. Not worthless in the sense that, that we have no value to God, but the word means to spoil. It means to render useless. And the point is that it's impossible for human beings under the, under the power of sin to truly worship God. We can't live out what we were designed for, what we were made for. And again, that, that purpose that God has for us is a good purpose. It's the only place that we can find real life. After exposing our internal corruption, Paul in verses 13 through 18 he shows that, that sin perverts the other members of our body as well. Sin affects our throat and our tongues, our lips, our mouth, our feet, by implication, our hands and our eyes. And so it begins in the heart, but it always expresses itself over time in what we say and do and live for and how we relate to others. And so the, the big idea of these verses is that apart from Christ, sin is not just a behavioral issue but it's a corruption of your entire being. This is very important to understand. Sin, it's not just a behavioral issue. It's a corruption of our entire being. Now, why has Paul spent so much time in the book of Romans to prove that this is a universal condition of humanity? Well, the first reason is that no one can be saved unless they recognize first their sinfulness and hopeless condition apart from Christ. Paul has been seeking to, to strip away every shred of, of excuses people can make, any bit of self-confidence self or self-righteousness people might feel before God. And what he is saying, we need, to, we need to wrestle with it because it flies in the face of what our culture says. Our culture, most of, of the people you know who aren't Christians, they believe that people are basically good. Human beings are... They are basically good, and any dysfunction in our lives is due to our environment. You know, maybe it's 
poor education. Maybe it's a lack of finances. Maybe it's ways that they have been abused or wronged by others. And certainly the Bible's clear. All of those things can affect us, often in huge ways. But at the same time, this section in Romans, it reminds me of a, a book that I'm reading right now about a man named Mez McConnell. Now, Mez, he grew up in the foster care system in Scotland, and he experienced awful abuse, just terrible, terrible abuse from a young age. You know, as a child, he was on the, on the streets and was involved in a life of, of drugs and crime where he saw friends die. And he experienced many terrible things, and he writes how he was sure if God existed, God didn't care about poor people like him. As a troubled child and teen, he saw many therapists and social workers who gave him a steady diet of self-help counseling. You are, you are good. The problems in your life is just that you've been put in bad circumstances. That's, that's the issue. If, if things had been different in your life, then you wouldn't be so angry. You wouldn't be so bitter. And not surprisingly, that only made him more bitter. That only made him more frustrated. And it wasn't until he was in prison and some Christians came and began to share the gospel with him that his life changed. Now Mez is a pastor. He's planting churches among some of the poorest people in Scotland. And I want you to listen to why he says being clear about sin is so important in his, his context and then realize that the application, it holds true for any context, for our context as well. He says, the Bible challenges us to own our sin and take responsibility for the things that we have done. Yes, we're all victims of sin to one degree or another. There is a place for compassion and mercy and sympathy. We should weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Don't miss that. We should weep as Christians with those who weep. We should mourn for those going through difficult things. And yet, he goes on, the Bible never allows us, though, to use the actions of others as an excuse for the things that we have done. Anyone who wants to help people in needy areas must encourage them to see themselves not primarily as victims, but as sinners and willful rebels. We do sinful things because we're sinful people living in rebellion against our creator. God is angry at sin and sinners. His wrath is against us and he doesn't grade on a curve. This may be a bitter pill at first, but it is ultimately life-giving medicine. Unless we help the poor to see themselves as the Bible does, we will, we will ultimately leave them trapped and helpless like a hamster in a wheel. They'll be destined to, to see themselves at the center of a world that is all about them and their problems. But when we help the poor to understand themselves as God sees them, as not righteous, as not seeking him, as not good, as sinners, when we help people to see themselves as God sees them, we open up the door to real deep gospel transformation that goes far beyond our wildest imaginings. In his book, he details a number of the testimonies of people who, whose lives have been totally transformed by the power of the gospel. And I want to remind you, this again, it's true in any context. What, what he's saying here is true about you know, the, the richest people in life, the richest communities as well. See, we can be impressed by people who look like they have their lives all together, but God isn't. He's, not, he's never fooled by that. God sees what's going on in our hearts. And he knows that all people, we have the same idol-worshiping hearts that turn from our creator to worship created things. This is why Paul's worked so hard to prove humanity's sinfulness. The reason is because the saving power of the gospel, it only takes root in hearts that have bro been broken by their sinfulness. Not just the sinfulness of the world, but your sinfulness before God. 
this reality. It's not just important, though, for the lost to hear. It's important for believers as well. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but let me just mention one. If you're a Christian, you've been given the gift of righteousness in Christ and also his spirit. And so you begin to seek God. You begin to desire to live righteously for God's sake. But it's important to to remember you still live life in a sinful body. (laughs) You still uh, are in a body corrupted by deceitful desires. And so as believers, we need to be aware of how easily we can be led astray and, and we can be led by our flesh without even recognizing it. It is so easy to dishonor God. It's so easy to sin against other people. Again, we we could talk about all kinds of areas, but I want to just highlight one that stands out to me from the passage, and that's our speech. I don't know if you noticed, but Paul, he zeroes in on our speech. He talks about our throats and our, our lips, our tongues, our mouth. He puts a lot of attention there, and I think it's because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say is one of the, the big things that indicates our problem as human beings, that, that shows that we're sinners. You know, in, instead of worshiping God and praising God and thanking God, our tendency, more often than not, is to complain about life, to complain about our circumstances. Instead of going to God and processing those things, we, we complain about them with others. And the Bible's clear. When we complain about our circumstances, what we're actually doing is complaining against God. If he's sovereign, if he's in control, then then he will work everything that's happening in your life for good if you trust him. Not only do we not honor God with our tongues the way we should, we don't love people with what we say. We're supposed to encourage and build others up, and yet so often what we do instead is we tear people down with harsh words, frustration maybe to their face, but often behind people's backs. When people get hurt, instead of dealing, it with direct, dealing with them directly, it can be so common to go and tell other people about what happened and attack their, attack their character before others. Now the, the reason that I'm bringing this up, the reason it's so important to, to understand the pervasiveness of sin as Christians is because it should humble us before God and other people. It, it should help us to realize how much we need God today. Today, we need God to honor him and to really love other people. And it should help, help us to, to always budget that we might be wrong. We might be, a, we might be a bigger part of the problem in conflicts that we're dealing with than we realize. So Paul, he's demonstrated for us the universality and the pervasive depravity of sin. And then he comes to his verdict on human sinfulness. This is our second main point. It's every mouth shut. Verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Rather than being a source of salvation, as many of the Jews believed, Paul shows here that the primary purpose of the law is to expose sin and end all excuses. It exposes sin, he says, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And it ends all of excuses because it says that the law is what will shut every mouth. That no one will be justified 
by the law. That statement, it picks up Paul's emphasis that no one is righteous, not even one. And so naturally, then no one could be justified by trying to keep the law. If you think that you're good enough to be accepted by God, good enough to get into heaven, or could ever be good enough, the whole message is saying, God loves you and you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. You'll never, you'll never be good enough. Humanity has enough knowledge of God, either through creation or our conscience or the scripture, to be without excuse on the day of judgment. And without excuse means you have nothing to say. You have no way to try and justify yourself. The language Paul is using here, it evokes a man on trial who's given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, but he's speechless in light of the overwhelming evidence against him. Can, can you picture that? Someone not, not in a human courtroom, but in a divine courtroom before God. This is, this is the image that's, that's been in my mind this week. Have you ever had times in your life where some, some memory pops into your head and you think, oh, wow, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I actually did that. Does that ever happen to you? And you're just kind of like, oh, you cringe. I think that's a little tiny taste of what it'll be like when people stand before God. All of, all of it will be exposed. Everything we've ever done, everything internally will be exposed. And this brings us back to what I shared at the beginning. There will be no excuses or accusations of injustice when people stand before God. Think about how different that is than the way people operate naturally. We are so quick to make excuses for our sins and justify our sin. It's so easy for us to get bitter at God, even Christians, for the pain and difficulty in our lives. Think about Job. Job was a righteous man, and he wanted to take God to trial. He, he, he began to believe, God, God, it feels like you've wronged me Many in our society, probably people that you work with, fellow students for some of you, many of them, they hate the idea that God will judge sinners. They hate the idea, especially that, that God would send people to hell. And one time I was talking to, to someone and they said that I wish God existed so then I could stand before him someday and give him a piece of my mind. Have you ever heard anyone say something like that? I'm just like, Paul saying, that's never going to happen. When people stand before God, every mouth will be shut. No more excuses, no more accusations, no more delusions. When human beings stand before God, his judgment is going to be so precise and so nuanced and so undeniably fitting that no one can dispute it. Nobody his glorious holiness and our great sinfulness, it's going to be so apparent that even those condemned to hell, they're going to have to agree with the verdict. Think about Luke 16, the parable of the man, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he's sent to Hades, the temporary place where people await final judgment, the preview of hell. And he has a lot to say there. But one thing that he doesn't bring up, he never makes an excuse for why he's there. He never tries to defend himself and say, this is, you made a mistake, I shouldn't be here. He never says that. And the same is going to be true when human beings stand before God. No one at that, no one at that time is ever going to be able to say, God, you made a mistake. God, you're wrong, I'm right. It'll be crystal clear to everyone. He's perfectly good. He's always right. And we are the ones in the wrong. 
hell is one of the, the hardest realities of Scripture to wrestle with, especially, the, especially for those of us who have lost loved ones that do not know Christ. There's some people who don't even really take the, the claims of Christ seriously because they think to themselves, if this is true, then there's people I love who probably aren't in heaven, who are probably in hell. But this passage, it reminds us, God is never going to judge anyone more harshly than they deserve. Never. His punishment always perfectly fits the offense. I wonder if if this reality that all human beings are without excuse before God, is this the way that you regularly see other people? See, I think as Christians, it's often how we feel about ourselves, but I think it gets fuzzy often when when we look at others. I think especially as some of, some of you, as you grow up, as you have kids, as, you, as you're able to spend less and less significant time in people's lives, it can be easier and easier just to have kind of shallow surface relationships with people where you don't get to see their dysfunction. You just kind of see people with a smile on their face. And we can think to, think to ourselves, oh, they, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty good. They're, pretty, they're, they're great. They're fine. And we, and we can miss that even the nicest people in the world, the most put-together people in the world, from God's perspective, if they don't know him, their, their heart, their heart, it is turned away from him and they're desperately in need of a savior. We need God to help us to see people more clearly, to help us not to see ourselves, but to see, see others the way, the way that he does. All of us, we deserve God's judgment. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. And that's why the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power of God because we are powerless on our own to save ourselves. God the Son, he became a man and he lived a perfectly righteous life. The only one who ever has. And he never sinned. And yet he was treated more unjustly than any other person. Now, no one in the history of the world has more of a right to to argue their innocence, to point out all the ways that they were mistreated. No one has more of an excuse to do that than Jesus. And yet, what did he do when he was on trial? Isaiah 53, the famous prophecy tells us, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. It's like God doesn't want us to miss it. The Messiah is not going to open his mouth. The Savior is not going to open his mouth. Why didn't he defend himself? It's because he didn't come to defend himself. He came to die for you. He didn't come the first time to argue his own righteousness. He came to rescue us. Jesus, the righteous one, willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins. And not just the wicked things we've done, but all the good things for wrong reasons. He not only died, but he conquered the grave so that righteousness could be given as a free gift of grace to all who believe. It's the power of God for the the salvation of everyone who believes, not works. When God looks down from heaven, if you're a Christian, did you know that you're righteous in his sight? When God looks down from heaven, you're acceptable in his sight. Not because of any works that you've done, but because of the work of Christ. If you're faced in him, you're in him. You're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. In fact, if you're a Christian, you have the same right to heaven as Jesus did because you are righteous in him. Rather than condemn you for your sin as a judge, Jesus, if you're a Christian, 
he represents you as a perfect defense attorney. Listen to 1 John. It says, my little children, I'm writing, these, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, so he's writing to Christians, when we do sin, he says, we Christians, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is like a defense attorney. It's someone who speaks up on behalf of another. It says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This verse helps us see full circle why Jesus didn't open his mouth on trial. He kept his mouth closed during his trial so that he could open it for yours. When you stand before God in judgment, Jesus, instead of condemning you, Jesus, if you're a Christian, he will declare you're righteous. This one's righteous before the Father based on my work. A God this righteous and this holy and this humble and this gracious is worthy of all of your trust. You you should trust him with your entire life. You can come to him in the brokenness of your sin to find forgiveness and hope and the power to change. And if you've never trusted him as Savior and Lord, I hope that you'll do that today. Now, just to, to close, that brings me to our application. The first is to own your sin. And if you've never recognized that you can never be good enough before God, then the first thing you need to do is to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ, to put your hope in what he's done, not, not anything that you could ever do, to entrust your life to him. Now, for believers, we need to continue to own our sin as well. It is very easy as believers to, to be quick to excuse our sin instead of confessing it to God and others when appropriate. Instead of asking him to, to change us and give us fresh strength each day to walk in obedience, we can just make excuses for our sin. And as long as we make excuses, we're going to continue in those sins. If you make excuses, you're going to continue in your sin. But if you confess your sin, if you'll, if you'll be honest about it, confess it to God, you can begin to tap into his power and live in cons- consistent victory over it. See, I think as as Christians, we often don't want to think about sin. We want to just jump right ahead to God loves us. We want to jump right ahead to the gospel. But it's important that we remember how serious sin is, how ugly it is, how dark the sin nature still is in us. Because as we do, it actually helps us to be more thankful for the gospel. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, We're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The longer you walk with Christ, if you're a Christian, you're going to become more aware of how sinful you are, not less. God doesn't show you it all up front. If he did, it would probably crush us. The longer you live with him, the more you'll realize how sinful you are. And if if you're honest with yourself, if you let God expose that, it will only make you love him more. It'll only make you love the gospel more. The final point of application is that we should open our mouths. For believers, we should open our mouths. I want you to have the picture of of Jesus keeping his mouth closed so that he could save you. And in light of that, I hope when you come to church, I hope you come excited to sing to your Savior. I hope you come excited to worship him. You know, in our interactions with other believers, you know, we want to talk about life, know what's going on in in life, really care about each other. But I hope you come to church and pray and you, you think, God, how can I be an encouragement to other people? How can I share things that will help them grow in their love for Christ? And as we go out from church, as we go back to to our neighborhoods, to our jobs, to our classrooms, 
I hope we'll, we'll think about this image of Jesus. He kept his mouth closed so that he could save me, so that he could speak up when I stand before him someday. And I pray that what that would do in our souls is that it would give us a greater burden to speak up and tell others about him. To ask God, help me see people the way you do. God, help, help give me opportunities and the boldness to ask people about you, to start spiritual conversations, to point people to the only hope for me and the only hope for all of humanity. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how it, how it points to your heart and your love for us and the lengths that you went to to seek us and to save us. And God, I, I do pray that the gospel would never get old to us, Lord, but that we'd have a growing gratitude to you for what you've done and that that really would cause us to love you more. As a church, we would love one another more. We'd care about each other's spiritual health more. And God, as we walk with you, I pray that we'd be a brighter and brighter light in our community, that you'd give us more and more opportunities to tell people about what you've done and to point them to you. We ask you to do all of that in your great name. Amen.